right, let's just, we're going to get started. We'll, we'll pray and ask the Lord to be with us. God, we do, do nothing outside of your will. <clears throat> we can do nothing outside of your power. Lord, we desire to be those branches abiding in the vine. And Lord, you are the vine. You are the word, the living word. And uh, we just ask that you would be with us today as we open up the book of Acts and talk about um, the things here, Lord, about proclaiming your gospel. Um, Be with us, clear our hearts, cleanse our conscience. Um, We thank you for the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. We pray pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we have a smaller group today. So we we need more interaction. I'm just kidding. So we're in Acts 17, and this is actually part three. And so the last two parts of the book of Acts uh, we, of 17, we talked about Paul <clears throat> uh, traveling through to Thessalonica, and um, Jason uh, was holding the, the believers at their house, or was his house was the central hub for that area. He got pulled down to the magistrates because they were proclaiming another king. Jesus, and um, the crowd got stirred up, so Paul got sent to, the name of the place is, the next place after that, Berea, yes, Berea was um, a type of place that was a little bit more academic, a little bit more socially sophisticated, and the Bereans did something that each of us should always do when we hear whether it's a new teaching or even an existing teaching we ought to do what Aunt? search the scriptures search the scriptures because the scriptures are where we are claiming um, this truth is coming from so if that is in fact true the scriptures will reveal it and so we talked a lot last week about the different types of scripture interpretations that there are and The only way that we could claim that the Bible is our absolute ultimate authority is if we have a hermeneutic, a way to look at the Bible, that gives us the foundation for that authority. If the Bible can be made to say anything that we want it to say, like if we just want to impose different translation methods on this part of the Bible, but not on that part of the Bible. We really are, are chopping our feet or legs off here because <clears throat> we can no longer refer to the Bible as truth if we start to jump around. So we have to have a, a consistent hermeneutical method that fits in every aspect of the Bible, regardless of where it's at. We put the lens that we're interpreting it over that so that it could stay consistent. And the only way that... <clears throat> you can truly get consistency out of the scripture. We have to also think of the character of God. God is not a schizophrenic. God is not changing. God doesn't, he's not different today than he was 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. He's the same God. And so the way that God communicates to people, um, he does it in a way that is part of his character. In God's character, part of God's, character where John even uses this for the word word is logic which the word in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God it's very unique to use that word for word John was playing off of um, the Greek interpretation of logos which 
which comes from the word logic and knowledge. And, and <clears throat> so he's ultimately, he's hinting at this for his Greek audience, that all things, <clears throat> excuse me, were created for him, by him, and through him. Nothing was made that wasn't made. It was all made through Jesus. So with Jesus being this, with, with logic being a part of the character of God, God is also going to create that logic in his human beings, made in his image, that which gives us the ability to communicate right now, because you know, without logic, we can't even understand a sentence, we can't put words together, we can't have uniformity of nature, we can't have science, we can't have math, we can't have morality, anyway, with an ultimate standard. <clears throat> so God is, wants us to use that logic when we read and when we process the knowledge <clears throat> and he wants us to look at a way to look at the scriptures in a way that's logically consistent with his nature <clears throat> and we come up with the, the way that we came up with was what's the best way to read the scriptures to make sure we are getting uh, everything that's intended by the Holy Spirit you don't have to remember the exact terminology but does anyone know what the process is Yes, the historical grammatical interpretation. I'm going to walk around a little bit. Is that all right? Got the camera following me? Yeah. All right. I'm joking. I'm making fun of our... I'm, I'm not making fun of Phil, but Phil was a great speaker on Thursday night. He walked around, and that's what he said. But anyway, so yes, the two words are historical grammatical interpretation. Historical comes from our desire to know what the history is that's going on at the time. Because without knowing that, we are sort of taking uh, a scripture and um, sort of just letting the words be the words. Forget about the background to it. Let's just grab a lesson out of what we read as, a, as it applies to our time and our day. You can't get the pure inspiration of the Holy Spirit that way because the, the Holy Spirit has intention when he's writing to the people that's hearing, that's hearing it. So we have to put it in the context of the history going on at the time, which means the intent of the author, the listeners, what was going on politically at the time, what, other, what, what the, these statements mean to those people hearing it. Okay, it means a lot different when you say, <clears throat> when you're telling people to repent and turn is different in the New Testament than when Jeremiah was saying it to the exiles. Why? Because the exiles were looking at their city decimated. They were starving to death. Their children were being killed. Their women were being killed. The men were being taken into slavery. And Jeremiah is encouraging them to repent. That's a big difference than the Pharisees hearing it in their dressed up garb and their proud identity that they have as religious leaders is different. So to really get the application of repent in those, you could, you could apply it in two different ways at two different times. So it's very important. And so the Bereans were like this. They were searching the scriptures to see if these things were so. And they did it with great eagerness. They were examining, this is verses 11. They were examining the scriptures daily. 
So they were rolling out those scrolls and they were having discussions. And after they did that, they believed. You see, when you have a, um, the right interpretation of a scripture, you now have, with not to get new agey, but you have, you have awakened the Holy Spirit now to be able to do its work in the heart of that listener. And that's what happened here. It says, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. Therefore, many believed. And so the therefore many believed is not because they necessarily just found it in the scriptures and it made sense to them now. Oh, we see it here. Because that doesn't do much good for skeptics. They always can find a reason to doubt. But the Holy Spirit through is, is works through the word of God because it's the breath of God, well, the word. And it makes a difference in our hearts when we hear it. And it was cool the other night, if you guys were here, um, Phil Reardon gave his testimony. And he was demonstrating, a lot of his testimony was about sharing the gospel. And he, was, he took a, a sticky pad, I don't know if you remember, and he stuck me with a bunch of like little stick it notes. But he was demonstrating that this is what happens when we talk the word of God to someone. The seeds get planted and they stay on in that. The word will accomplish that which it had, God intended it to do. And so as we read the scriptures, as people hear the scriptures, those seeds get planted and ultimately they believe. <clears throat> so just a little review there, the importance of hermeneutics. How do we exercise that now in our daily devotions and on our daily studying? What are some of the things that we would do, some of the tools we could use? Anybody remember? Looking at the context, doing a word study. Yep. Doing a word study. <clears throat> Find out where else this word is used in the scripture in the same way. And I always like to find out the other words that were available to use too. Because like John is a master at that. He, he'll have five different meanings for this one word like angel, but he'll pick a very unique meaning for it so that way people understand what he's talking about and aiming to the context. That's not everywhere. You can go overboard with that. <clears throat> but there are some really unique times in scripture, a lot, where we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New. We say, wow, <clears throat> pretty neat. I was reading um, in Ezekiel uh, the prophecy that Ezekiel was given to the exiles about the new temple that's going to be built. <clears throat> and I remembered when I read it that in, uh, the new temple is going to be, was paved completely. The, the whole inner sanctuary was paved with pure gold floors so that it was almost transparent. That's how beautiful it was. And then we see the same picture, that same word, that same application and context, the same type of scripture, apocalyptic, symbolic, in the book of Revelation. And we hear about when God comes and brings the temple to earth and heaven and earth are made one, what does he say the, the streets are made out of? Gold. And so we see a parallel there. That's the context now. I found a double, I found a, two scriptures that are really the same. And considering the book of Revelation is 60, probably 60% straight out of Ezekiel, 
that also gives me something to really look at when I want to teach that. So if I was teaching that, those two scriptures would bring me the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see, because I'm doing that word search, the context search, the type search. <clears throat> so we've got to be careful that we don't force it in, but we want to find meanings of the word, and, and obviously we could use tools such as the blueletterbible.org <clears throat> and many other online tools that give us uh, original language and verb tenses and things like that. All right, so any questions on that? Okay, so let's go now. So Paul now is, you know, the people from the Jews from Thessalonica are basically following him around, which is no, you know, small task. It's not like they could just get in the car and just say, hey, we'll follow that guy. I mean, this is miles of walking or riding horses or carts or whatever, however they traveled. And they followed him there. And so he left Timothy and Silas to remain there to teach these guys. And then Paul took off. And as if you remember in the map, he sailed down south of Macedonia and then he got to Greece. Uh, he got to Athens. And this to me is one of the most coolest parts of the book of Acts for me, because this is a situation that I think really carries over well uh, to our lives, practically, as it relates to sharing the gospel. Because it says in verse 16, now Paul, well, now while Paul was waiting in Athens, and you know, his spirit was provoked. And as Christians, wherever we go, you know, our spirit should always be provoked for the people that are there. We should always look around and say, wow, these people need Christ. Lord, use me in this situation. Paul's in a situation where it's like, okay, go meet me at the mall and I'll be there soon. Maybe a day, maybe tomorrow. Just hang out there all weekend. I'll, I'll be there. So as he's there, he decides that he's not going to let it go to waste. So he just starts talking to people in the synagogues with the Jews. When he's done there, he goes out into this busy, bustling marketplace. And whoever happened to be there every day, he just starts to share the gospel. And God opens up opportunities when we do that. See, when we take action and we open our mouths or we just make ourselves available, we take that little step, that's all that God needs. And then he uses that. And this, something like this happened to me twice. So, the first time was about, I don't know, whenever they legalized gay marriage in New, in New Jersey, maybe eight, nine years ago or six, seven years ago. I don't know when it was. But we went to the state capitol to preach the gospel there because there was a, a lot of people protesting. And we were going to go preach the gospel to them, you know, because um, not everybody there was it wasn't like a Christian thing. And it was packed. I mean, it was the state capitol, huge. And so when we got there, there was a huge crowd and so we parked our car and we went and we were getting ready to start preaching and the crowd starts to dissipate. And we're like, where are they going? Well, they opened the, the state house doors and everybody went into the proceedings. And the proceedings room was huge. It was probably three times the size of this. It was filled with people. And uh, I said, well, what are we going to do now? And I said, well, let's go in. And uh, let's see if they, you know, what we could do inside. Maybe we could just hand out tracks support people, whatever. So I walk up and they're like, uh, are, <clears throat> um, what did they say to me? 
are you here to present to the committee? I said, yes. <laughs> he goes, okay, what ministry are you from? I'm saying, no, what company are you from? Who are you representing? I said, go stand, speak ministries. It's an LLC. So, okay, your name, put me down. Now I'm on the list to go speak in front of the whole entire Senate. And uh, <clears throat> so I went and I sat down and I opened up my copy of the New Jersey State Constitution. And um, <clears throat> I said, this is what the New Jersey Constitution reads. It says, a constitution agreed upon by the delegates of the people of New Jersey <clears throat> on the 12th day of June and continued into the, the 10th day of December in the year of our Lord, 1,947. And then it says, we the people of the state of New Jersey are grateful to almighty God for the civil and religious liberties which he has permitted for us to enjoy. And I said, can anyone tell me what God that is? That's what I asked the committee. And all of a sudden, all the security came around me. I'm not kidding you, it was so funny. And I'm sitting there and I said, just by what standard are you making these laws? Because you're according to the state of New Jersey, it's the word of God, almighty God. But that, this isn't what the, and I went and I preached the gospel and um, it was great, you know, and the whole place was full of uh, pro-gay uh, marriage clergy. Like there was all, they were all over the place. They, they really came and stormed it. And after I got done talking with them, I pulled over to the side. I had security now protecting me and they were talking and I was answering questions and debating and it was a man, it was fantastic. I got the gospel out and uh, I get home that night and my cousin Pete, Uncle Pete, he, he's a news guy. He watches the news all the time. He calls me, he goes, what are you doing? You're on the news. I was like, I am. And they put me on Channel 6 News and they gave me that shot. By what standard are you making these rules? And you know, they were just saying like there was pro this and then there was pro that and there was religious groups that spoke and they showed me to do that. So that was a really cool thing and that sort of reminds me of this because I went there, yeah, my spirit was provoked. I was gonna share the gospel, hand out some tracts, but God had something else in mind. He allowed me to testify and it's still on the internet today. If you type in Pat Nicarado State, um, New Jersey State Legislature or New Jersey Gay Marriage or something like that, it'll come up. And so um, it was pretty cool. And the second time this happened was, this was, um, I don't know when, if it was before or after this, but it was when my grandfather was still alive. And I used to, he used to live in Trenton. And so I used to go on Thursday mornings and preach the gospel at the train station. And then right from there, I would get my car and go see my grandfather in the morning. It was great because I was sharing the gospel with him too because he was raised Catholic and he was living by himself and he was in his late 80s. We had some great conversations. So one day I'm leaving and I see this huge crowd of people down on the corner. And I said, I wonder what's going on. And it was all homeless people out front of a Salvation Army. And so uh, I just went over to them and started talking to them and uh, handing out tracks. It was probably good 50, 60, waiting for them to open the doors to go in to get food. And so there's a light post that has a stand on it about that high, and then the light post goes up. So I jumped up on the light post, and I started presenting the gospel to them, and trying to encourage them, and the Salvation Army commander comes out. Get down from there. He starts yelling at me. 
I'm like, sorry. He goes, you, you can't do that here because we're state funded. And if they find out you're preaching the gospel, they could take away our, our state support. And I was like, he goes, but there's a loophole. I said, really? He goes, if you come in, when I let them in, you can go to each one of them individually and talk to them. And if you could, if you want, you could even take a room and have a Bible study. And I said, are you serious? I said, yeah. So I went in and I invited them all to a Bible study starting in 10 minutes. And I got about 10 people to come in. And I started doing that every Thursday. Like I had this group of people that I could go in, invite everyone in, and I ended up sharing the gospel. So I'm not telling you that to, to talk about me. I'm talk, saying that to be, if you just take little steps, God will open those doors, not all the time, but most of the time, something bigger will happen if you take that action, right? And just even like you were saying, Deb, at your job, you know, where you, you speak a word and then it turns in like the story that you told last week about somebody said something and it provoked your spirit. And then six months later, something happened as a result of it. You know, you, even the prayer that whatever it is, be sensitive of the Holy Spirit's leading when it comes to sharing the gospel. Okay, And so that's what happens with Paul. He ends up going. His spirit is provoked. He starts in the synagogue. He then goes in the marketplace every day. And then after a while, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are going, Why, what's this idle babbler talking about? Others say, well, he's a proclaimer of strange deities because he's preaching the resurrection. Uh, 18. <clears throat> and so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, this is a really big deal. This is much bigger than going in front of the Senate. This would be like, you know, getting an audience with the governor and all of his people. I mean, this would be really huge because the Areopagus were, uh, it was a governing council that was made up. It's almost like a Supreme Court. It's like once you're elected to it, you're sort of always there until you die or something else happens. If you do something wrong, I guess you get kicked out. But this was a big deal. And so now he's in front of the, these, this council and um, he ends up going into this court area, which is on Mars Hill, and he stands in front of them. And he says, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. <clears throat> How would you describe Paul's uh, uh, evangelistic method here? What, what, do you, what is he doing well? Maybe we think he's not doing well. What, from that first sentence, what could we uh, discern and understand about Paul's method? Yes, he relates to the people. It's very, it's good. You know, he's, we, in sales, they would call building rapport. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we get such a, um, uh, mixed messages, I guess you could say, from the Christian world, where evangelism is always this militant, like, old, like, I have to give them the gospel, the first word out of my mouth, I got to talk to them about hell. I got to talk to them about the resurrection. We got all these check boxes. But again, the, one of the best things that you could do with somebody when you first share the gospel is identify something about them that 
that can give you a clue of, of maybe some affinity that you have with that person. <clears throat> you know, what it, regardless of what it is, you're wearing the same shoes. I don't know. You like the dress they have on. You like the way they did their hair. They're from a neighborhood that you know of. You know, find some common ground. You know, you would never be that way in a store if a salesperson came right up to you and said, I hope you brought your credit card because you're going to buy these sneakers today, right now. You need to buy them. If you don't buy them, you're going to look stupid. And the shoes you have on, they're, look at those, they're terrible. You need new shoes. You know, we would be offended and we'd walk away. And so regardless of what situation we're in, you know, you, it's okay to give somebody a track. You know, that could be the building of the rapport. If they take the track and they stop and they look at it, say, hey, what do you think? Uh, did you ever read a gospel track before? <clears throat> and they'll say, no, I, I never really did. I don't go, well, open it up and read about Jesus. I say, oh, where are you from? Well, we're just visiting here for the, for the weekend in Asbury, me and my family. Oh, yeah, where are you from? I'm from New York. What part? Uh, the Queens. Oh, wow, my, my, do- my wife is from Queens. That's cool. And you're Spanish? Man, my wife's Spanish, too. But do you go to a church? Uh, well, sometime. And so I build that rapport with them. Or I'll just say, hey, here's what we're doing today. We're just out here talking to people. And if you have any questions, let me know. By the way, are, are you a Christian? And I want to try to see what I can understand. If they say no, no thank you, and they start walking away, then I may say, hey, make sure you read that. There's a great important message in there. Most important thing you'll read probably the rest of your life. Read it. And then I'll, because they're gone. And so you want to build that affinity. You want to talk to them. And that's what Paul's doing here. Hey, I observed that you're very religious. I was examining all your objects of worship. He's not condemning them. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Great. uh, That's a really good segue because now, Paul, they can't say, well, we don't believe you or we don't, you know, believe in those kinds of things because they had more idols and more statues in Athens, they said, than there were people in Greece. <laughs> and so Paul found this one. They got to be sure. You know, in case we miss the God, the unknown God. That's, that's, what, that's the context behind this. We don't want to disrupt any of the gods. That's the way the Greeks thought. So let's put uh, the unknown God. Who knows? We may find out this guy comes down. He's, uh, he's, he's mad at us. Where's my statue? Well, who are you? Well, we didn't know who you are. That's why we put the unknown God, so don't kill us. That's how they thought. And then Paul speaks, starts to get a little Paulish. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's probably pointing around to this. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's presenting a God here who is all-powerful, he's the creator, and he's all-sufficient in himself. And he gives, 25, he gives himself, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. See, Paul is breaking down very simply and very specifically to these people and gently that God is the all-powerful God who made everything and he doesn't dwell in statues or, or, or compartments, temples made with hands. He doesn't need anything. And guess what? Verse 26, he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He made from one man. This is why in God's eyes, there's no such thing as racism. There's no such thing as difference between male and female as it regards to um, value. God from one person made every single person in every nation to live on the face of the earth. Now he's talking about God's providence, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they may grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. There's a, there's a neat little theological tidbit here, right? About the providence and, and of God. Not you know, We all believe... <clears throat> in one sense or another, I hope we all believe, that God is sovereign. I'm going to grab a bottle of water from over here. What's the sovereignty of God mean? What's the sovereignty of God mean? That he has everything in control and understands it. Thank you, man. That's good enough. <laughs> He's got everything in control. And he what? Uh, like he um, understands what we're going through at all times. Yep. <clears throat> because God is God, there is no outside force or power other than God. So therefore, God knows everything. He can't discover something new. He can't be taught anything. He has no needs. If God doesn't know something... That presupposes another God. If he doesn't know something, that presupposes somebody else, something else is in charge of that because they're keeping it from God. So that's why that's impossible. God is completely 100% sovereign. We know that. He's, his providence rules over all. And somehow, in some way, in that amazing power, He's able to give us choice. He's able to interact with us as real human beings in a real relationship. We're not puppets. It's not fatalistic. But it shows here that God, when he made man, <clears throat> Adam and Eve, every person that lives today came from them. And when you drive down the street and you look at all the houses and apartments and shelters and every single abode that human beings exist in. God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That means God has chosen for you to live where you are right now, to go through the life that you went through, every place you've ever been, that you would seek God and grope for him and find him. <clears throat> For in him we live and move and exist. And even as some of your poets have said, for we also are his children. And that's from a poet, Arat, uh, Aratus, or Aratus. He was uh, from 315 to 245 um, AD. He was writing a book about Zeus. And Paul quoted him directly right here. Talking about Zeus, the poet wrote that 
He is not, uh, if perhaps we grope for him and find for him, and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, here's what he wrote, for in him we live and move and exist. And Paul says, and even as your poets have said as well, for we also are his children. So he's quoting from one of the most well-known Greek philosophy books, really a Greek religious text, about the ultimate God in Greece, which is Zeus. And he's saying, your own poet said this, but this is actually pertaining to the one true and living God. So he's really went right for the juggler there. And he's really attacked the hot button on their worldview. And their worldview is that there's many, many gods. Zeus is in charge of them. But but Paul is now, is, is, is clipping out Zeus, and he's, he's undermining Zeus by saying, God makes every man, God has, doesn't dwell in temples like, you, like your Zeus does. God doesn't need anything like your Zeus does. God has, the, has appointed every single person to live where they are so they may find God. And then he closes it by saying, in him we live and move and exist, and we are his children. So he's, he's, he's quoting right from their text, which I thought is really cool. <clears throat> and, and again, being the, the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or thought of man. Don't think of God like that. <clears throat> so he has not only did, has he used very much uh, wisdom in his, his proclamation. And Luke doesn't give us the whole, the whole thing. He's given us the meat and potatoes. He probably spoke for longer than this. <clears throat> but the cool thing is, is now he calls that out really as sin of what they're doing. And that's the one thing that <clears throat> if you don't, if you don't, why, well, let me ask you guys, I'll put it in a question. Why is it so important to talk about sin when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? There's a lot of reasons, but what, give me a couple of them. Right. We don't. We need to know what we're being saved from. Salvation requires repentance. Yeah. So salvation requires repentance, Gab said. So we have to agree with God on our sin. And then we have to turn. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. And so Paul has, has just called him out. Like he's probably pointing. Like the divine nature isn't like gold or silver or stone formed by the art or thought of man, like pointing at the screens and all this stuff. That's not where God's at. And then he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring, you could also say commanding in this word, that all people everywhere should repent. This is a, uh, um, a direct Absolute statement here, okay? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul's saying the proof that we are all going to be judged is the, is the resurrection. We are all going to be raised and stand before this God. And so he is now declaring 
that all people everywhere should repent. But I like how he, I like how he puts this statement in here because this is really neat as a theological tidbit. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. See, because a lot of times I'll, I'll talk to people on the street and they'll say, well, what about like before Christianity? Like, you're, are you trying to tell me that <clears throat> God was like invisible, like to all these people all throughout the world, but only in Israel, that's the only place he was? And I say, yes, the world was under the power of Satan. The world was his kingdom. And so God had no more right at all to be here. He had lost everything at the fall. But what God did is God built a holy conduit. You know what a conduit is? Like a, like you, if you see those, these strips along the, well, they're conduit. They're holding the wire, right? So the wire is protected. And so God built this holy conduit to, that was exactly perfectly to the nines what had to happen in order for God to communicate with man. It was an image of heaven, the tabernacle and temple in heaven. God brought the law down. He brought the Ten Commandments. He brought the tabernacle. He brought a people and he atoned for them through the sacrifices. And he, he, he sent them through that protective conduit until Christ came defeated the work of Satan and evil, sin and death, and now the world is open again for the gospel to go out. But instead of people coming to a temple to worship, now the temples are going out to proclaim Christ. And so God, through that time, he, <clears throat> he overlooked the times of ignorance. We see that in the book of Romans chapter 3, it talks about God giving us a forbearance. Remember we talked about that? I think um, Wednesday night maybe or last Sunday. But a forbearance is, oh, it was Wednesday night because I was picking on Randy because he was, he was in loans and mortgages and stuff. What's a forbearance, Randy? Right, exactly. When they take a payment and they put it, and they put it on the back of the loan. <clears throat> right? So when you can't make your car payment, I know when I was... In my 20s, I was always calling my bank saying, can I have a forbearance? Can you put this payment on the back? I need this extra $200 to make it through the month. And they would do that. But it wouldn't be a forgiveness. It would just push it further, be dealt with later. And that's what God has done with the people in, <clears throat> in the world until Christ came, especially with the people uh, of Israel that really weren't seriously... They weren't removing the guilt from their sins. They're just covering them, right? So God took that and now Christ is risen from the dead. So now he, he, before he overlooked the times of ignorance, but now there's no more excuses. God is declaring to men that all people everywhere must repent. And this is why, because the repentance is needed in order to make it through that day of judgment. That Jesus, when he comes back in his blazing glory, is going to judge every single person, every knee, every bow, every knee, every bow, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue. Those that didn't believe him, that, that cursed him on earth, that didn't want to follow him on earth, that said, ah, there's no God, or show me proof and then I'll believe him, they're going to say, Jesus Christ, you are Lord.
and they're going to be cast away because they don't have any covering for the justice of God on their life. God is not going, I'm going to get you and blast you into dominion and burn you forever and ever and ever. No, God is pleading with all men everywhere. Get into my, get under my wings, right? Like Jesus said, like a chicken calling a hen, calling all her chicks to protect them from that barn fire. Put them under my wings. That's what he said. Oh, I wish I could gather you like, like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. People are accountable. They didn't see the day of their visitation. And so God is saying now justice has to be done and justice for sin is death. And so if you're not for him, that's what you've chosen. And so when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, 32, some began to sneer, "Eh, you know, come on. There is no, that is, that is so bizarre for them and their worldview and their culture. Resurrection was just not something that at all would happen in this place and time. Maybe at the end in the next world. So, but again, God throwing out those seeds, some of them said, we shall hear you again. So Paul went out of their midst. So here's Paul, a couple days ago, hanging out, getting rescued from Thessalonica, takes a long trip down to Athens, thinks, now maybe I'll get some rest, but nope, he jumps right into it, starts to share the gospel on the marketplace in the synagogue, gets taken before the council, preaches a good sermon, and what happens? 34. Some men joined him and believed. One was Dionysus the Areopagite, Dionysius, I'm sorry, the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others. So one of those people that's sitting there with that worldview of millions of gods, with that worldview that Zeus is watching over me, with that worldview of let's go into a temple and make sacrifices. I need money. Let's go over to the temple over here, this goddess of money. I need this. Let's go to that and make a sacrifice. His worldview was changed. Paul didn't wrangle with him. Paul simply presented the gospel, talked about the resurrection, talked about sin, talked about repentance and faith, talked about who God was and who they are sinning against. He didn't twist their arms. He didn't yell at them. He didn't say, repeat this prayer after me. He just basically presented the gospel And people are like, hey, man, I want to join you. I believe what you're saying. That's the way. That's the way things happen with the Lord. So that's an interesting thing with Paul and uh, his his trip. And from from here, he's going to leave Athens and he's going to go to the place that we all know and love, Corinth, which is another hotbed of craziness and sin. And Paul, again, we're seeing really the epistles, right? All the epistles we're seeing. Paul writing to these epistles, talking to these guys. So it's neat to do this study with, when you look at the Paul, when you look at like this, chapter 18, it's cool now to look at the book of Corinthians after you read chapter 18, because you can sort of connect the dots, you know? So uh, anybody have any questions or any comments? 
or any application. I hope that was, you guys got something out of that. I hope it was helpful. Um, I sure enjoyed it. I love talking about the book of Acts. I think we should perpetually always be in the book of Acts doing something because this is what God wants us to be like. He doesn't want us to go back and live in those times, but he wants us to take these principles, the zeal of that New Testament church, the zeal for God and for each other, the love they had for each other, you know, the the community that they had. And I think we do have that here. I love how we pray. I love that, you know, we can always get better. Don't get me wrong, but we come together when we need to come together. And then there's power in that. So continue to be good Bereans. Continue to boldly proclaim your faith. Look at Paul. It doesn't have to be this big, long thing. Just God will open the door. God will open the door. Jesus will be presented. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this instruction book, Lord, that you've given us on life. Please speak to us today, Lord, and be with us during our worship service in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen.